Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. I don't know if you feel the same way as I do, but we seem to kind of be repeating topics lately. Like, like we're spiraling, like we're going around a drain in a spiral and we keep coming back to some of the same things. But isn't that the way life is? A cycle of events over the same thing happening over and over and over again, and we just can't break out of it. Yeah. So we change it up a little bit, but it's always we, this cyclical. Yeah, we make it just just different enough to have a different title for the episode. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> but I don't mind that. I mean, I mean, well, you know, it's funny because we are reevaluating topics that we've already explored. And actually what we're going to talk about today is how people are reevaluating. I don't want to say the importance of classic rock. The weight. The weight of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How it's just... The influence of classic rock. The core, it's the core American music, I think. Although some people might say, Tom Petty once famously said that country music is the new classic rock. You know, country music nowadays sounds like classic rock. So it's this mainstream sort of sound and, and it's being reevaluated all the time. What prompted this was Bob Lefsitz in his Lefsitz letter about a week ago, where he was talking about rock's resurgence. And some information he got from Billboard behind a paywall, as he points out, is that rock has grown most of any genre year over year in consumption units, with 11.2 million more units in 2023 over 2022. That growth, however, is almost entirely from catalog, 10.3 million of the 11.2 compared to 900,000 units of growth from current releases. We've talked about this in the past. Something like 70% of music listened to was catalog music, which is defined in the music industry as released more than 18 months ago. So not necessarily the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. But anything from, well, we're in July 2023, anything from 2021 and earlier is considered catalog music. And I think uh, for the most part, a lot of that music enters the cultural bloodstream and just stays there. And it's always there, except when other peripheral genres or formats kind of ebb and flow, classic rock is always right there to sort of fill in the fill in the, the, the empty spaces. Um one of the things he mentions in there is that pop and rap and hip hop are kind of dropping down. Latin is on the way up. I mean, it's always shifting, but it always, like I said, it always seems like there's always going to be classic rock. Not that I'm I'm rooting for it. I, I'm not rooting for it at all. I couldn't care less who comes out on top at any particular time. It's not important. Well, but it's it's the weight of the catalog music. If you go to the 60s and the 70s, the early 80s, it's classic rock. And that fills a catalog. And, and with music that we've heard over and over that's become so common that it can be played in elevators and supermarkets, it can be played on soundtracks of films, either something like Stranger Things, which was set in the 80s, or I keep telling you, you've got to watch Knives Out and see what the song they played over the final credits is. And that classic rock stuff, it's just a sort of a lingua franca of popular music. Yeah, it's kind of funny um, that, you know, just as when we were kids and we learned songs like The Farmer and the Dell 
and uh, <laughs> Ring Around the Rosie. Old MacDonald had a farm. Right. Yeah. You, you didn't think about how old those songs were. They were just there. And I think that's that's something that I'm coming to grips with, with people younger than me who come along, they're born in 1990s, and all that 70s and 80s music is just there. There's no... There's no time context for it like there is with us. A lot of you'll hear a lot of older people say, "Well, they don't write music like they used to anymore." It's like that's just because you like that old music and you don't particularly want to learn about the new music. That, sure, that's a fact. But um, the other part of it is is that it's just it's still there, and young people still like it. So there's there's no argument to say, "Well, there there's no argument saying it's bad music. It must be good if it's still being played." Well, to echo something that you've often said, Lefsitz in the same Lefsitz letter says Bette Midler covered the Andrew Sisters' "Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy" in 1972, but almost no boomer could sing another song from 1941. Right. Well, how much is that doggy in the window? White Christmas. They're all give or take a couple of years. We could come up with a few songs that we know, but. There is that gap of that stuff is just so old that with the exception of the sort of great American songbook, and Tony Bennett just passed away. He was a big promoter of that kind of music, which is a niche genre that you get with singers, that you get with jazz performers doing standards. All that is kind of, it's it's in a glass cage someplace, right? And it's not alive. It's not thriving music that we hear in different in different contexts. That's true. And that actually is kind of funny that 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 songbook is kind of like hands off. Don't mess with it. But yet it can still be performed. But it just isn't as popular as classic rock. Classic rock is 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 vital because it's it's a basic format of radio. There are a lot of stations on on a lot of uh, yeah stations on Sirius XM that are classic rock oriented. I saw an interesting thing the other day from uh, Edison Research, the largest, the most of any particular group that listened to Sirius XM is men 65 and older. Really? Now, I don't know if that's, yeah. Now, I don't know if that's because of Howard Stern, maybe, but it could be because they've got a lot of old classic rock stations and it's, and it's radio. And that's a thing that older fellows are familiar with because they don't, they're not into streaming. Streaming is still, I think, to a lot of people, still renting music. And so, especially for people of our generation, younger people, of course, don't see it that way at all. So I thought that was a very interesting tell about about where our generation is. They're still hooked on Sirius XM. And the music that they like is still there. But Sirius XM has a lot of artist stations, right? Yes. Yeah. Where you can listen to Grateful Dead all day long or Bruce Springsteen or whatever. I think I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that there are a couple of great commercials for Sirius XM, they're advertising the app and they have at home with Sirius XM, right? Listen at home with Sirius XM. And it's the house where all the people who work at Sirius XM live. So Alice Cooper is there and Alanis Morissette is there and all these people who I don't know who they are. But Alice Cooper is featured in three of the ads that I've seen. And that's not a coincidence. That's not, they didn't make those commercials with Alice Cooper in them because he was available. They made it because their target demo are older people who know who Alice Cooper is. And Alice Cooper was never that big back in the day. He was, I mean, he was a makeup performer, kind of like Kiss, but not to the same extreme. Yeah, theater, theater. He did, I, I, he, it wouldn't be, he wouldn't be embarrassed to say he did theatrical rock yeah. shows. So 
it it's not like he's classic rock. See, when I think of classic rock, I think of well, Bob Dylan, classic rock is like classical music. It's the thing that can be repurposed and covered by a lot of people. And probably probably Bob Dylan's songs have been covered by more artists than any other songs. Maybe the Beatles, but Bob has more songs. And you can reimagine those songs in different ways, unlike the Boogie Woogie Boogie Boy, which basically Bette Midler's cover kind of sounded like it was the 40s, just in stereo and better recording. Yeah. Well, I mean, classic rock originally is is a radio format, all right? That's that was invented by a guy named Fred Jacobs, and we may have called it, we may have called that kind of music classic rock, but he consolidated it into a radio format, and that's what you hear now, where it can be, it can be older music, it can be some current music, or at least it used to be able to be some current music. I don't think you can play current music in a classic rock format now. There's even classic alternative now. <laughs> um, and that's for people who who are stuck in the 90s. You know, so all the music from the 90s, all that that alternative music is still under glass as well. The other thing I wanted to say about this is like, you're talking about music because you were there at the conception. Sure. But... The reevalu the great reevaluation goes on without any context of of that. There's no feeling of, of a sense of how long a piece of music has been around. There's no sense of maybe how how weighty it could be. Bands that we thought were probably really important forty years ago are not now. The band. It's not an important band anymore. You don't hear people doing covers of band songs. Mm, the way you, know, you I, well, the, jam bands what, do ooh. it. The Grateful Dead has done it. Dead and Company. Yeah, but those are but those are again those are still older yeah. groups. Yeah, yeah. They haven't been covered. No one is no one is coming out with band tributes or things <laughs> like that. You know that. You know what I mean? It's like it's just not it's not on the radar. I mean, you may know a few band the songs by the band if you're a young person, but you're not looking for you know Billy Eilish to do a few band covers. Yeah, I found an article in the Guardian from 2009. Entitled Simon Reynolds Notes on the Naughties, the Musically Fragmented Decade. Now, I don't know who Simon Reynolds is. He's talking about a Pitchfork top 200 albums of the 2000s. And he was looking through this and saying, well, I don't know that the, the, the why are these the best? The, the, the seven of the top 10 were from the first two years, 2000 and 2001, with one from 2002, another from 2004, as if the decade faded as it went on. But he says something really interesting toward the end of the article. He says, I reckon that if you were to draw up a top 2000 albums of every pop decade and compare them, the noughties would win. It would beat the 90s decisively, the 80s handsomely, and it would thrash the 70s and the 60s. But I also reckon that if you were to compare the top 200 albums, it would be the other way around. The 60s would narrowly beat the 70s, 70s would slightly less narrowly beat the 80s, and so on and so on and so on. I didn't understand what that meant. And I, I and maybe it's because I don't I don't think there's any accounting for taste. So I well I, I think two thousand is too big a number. Okay, you can't come up with two thousand albums of a decade that are valuable, right? Two hundred, two hundred, you could you could come up with two hundred albums of a decade. Not that hard to find among the best selling, the the ones that won awards, you know, the most popular, etc. I think what he's saying is that that there's more good music in the noughties, the two thousands, but that there was more good music in the 60s and the 70s if you look at 
overall of all the decades, right? That's what I kind of got from it. He's kind of trying to say that, well, this was okay. Not that it was great, you know, and, and it's still not as good as the Beatles and that sort of stuff. I don't know. It's kind of... It's kind of confusing because any of these lists are all subjective. Well, anyway. the, the, like I said, the great reassessment is going on all the time. I think that starting in the mid noughties, that's pretty much when things shut down as far as classic rock went. As far as rock goes, there's nothing new as of the mid 2000s and after. It's all derivative. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There's a lot of great music that came out in the 2000s and, and later. And even now, there's no accounting for taste. I, I People don't want to not have accounting. <laughs> they want to they say, you know, the music was better or this is better or that is better. But I think it's all in a matter of context. If you were there, if you were there, Bonnie Raitt's albums were great. She was awesome. But yeah. now she's now she's a pop person and people don't remember what the original context of Bonnie Raitt was. For, just as an example, I don't know why I pulled her out. But isn't that always the case that... An, an artist's worth depends on what they're doing now and not what they did in the past. So you, you may have a, an artist that was huge in the 70s or the 80s and hasn't done anything since then. They're not considered, you can't stop time. They're not considered for just that one period. They're considered over their entire career. Yeah, that's true. That's probably true. And of course, I guess it's the last thing they did that's going to be remembered for the most part. I mean, it, maybe it's as simple as that. Oh, not really. I, I mean, so when David Bowie died, a lot of people talked about Black Star because one of the songs presaged the end and all that. But then they went back to the 1973. They didn't talk too much about the 80s or the 90s or the aughts or the, the, the 2010s or whatever. They kind of skipped a few decades. And that's pretty much the case with any artist who dies, that they're going to look back. Come on. When Elton John performed at Glastonbury, most of the songs were from the 70s. But I think the difference is that if he can continue his career performing those songs from the 70s, and he says, to heck with it. I'm not going to write any new stuff. I can make a living doing this, like the Rolling Stones. Didn't they have an album in the past decade, a new album that no one noticed? And, Maybe. You know, they just keep coming <laughs> out with new albums of greatest hits and live albums and all that. You can't judge someone on their entire history. It's like an athlete, right? So the Tour de France finished this weekend. Jonas Vingegaard won for the second time, and he's going to maybe win again, and then he's not going to win. And then it's like his career will be, his current career will be that, but he'll be remembered for when he won. It's that sort of thing. That's interesting. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't prevent the great reevaluation from happening. And, and the reason I want to talk about this is because one of the reasons I'm talking about the reevaluation is I was listening to Apple Music the other day and it, you know, it makes recommendations and it says, perhaps you'd like some jangle pop. And I'm like, what, what is jangle pop? And it's like all these bands from the nineties that I liked that are jangly, like, and, and particularly I was looking for the smithereens. <laughs> now when the smithereens were making music, I would have said they were like power pop, power rock or something, but definitely poppy. But now it's a category called jangle rock, and that includes bands like The Knack and, what you know, the, jang the very guitar-oriented jangle rock. I mean, that's just, I don't, I mean, I mean, I, I, now, I don't care Good about name. genres. In fact, the only reason I use genres is if someone says, 
what's that band sound like? And I said, well, they kind of do like ska, you know, they're kind of like Norwegian rockabilly. They're kind of like, you know, you use these phrases to kind of like try to pinpoint and try to communicate to someone what the music sounds like before they actually listen to it. Then once they've listened to it, then you don't have to do that anymore. You just say Steely Dan and, you know, you know what they sound like. But the jangle pop to me is is a is a reevaluation of these bands that we didn't considering aspects of them that we didn't consider when they first came out. I would not have considered the Knack a jangle pop band, just a straightforward power pop band. But we, I don't know if they talk about that anymore. So I'm finding something here that's defining jangle pop as a subgenre of rock music that features jangly treble focused electric guitars. And they're talking about R.E.M., the D.B.'s, the Bangles, the Smiths, the Birds, Wire, Gang of Four. Sorry, Gang of Four is not jangle pop. What? No, 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 no. And even no. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Tom Petty and yeah. Heartbreakers is classic rock just because he played well, guitars. It's, it's that 12-string jangle sound. That's why the birds are in there. Yeah. I'm thinking, think of the beginning of uh, Brass in Pocket by, yeah. by the Pretenders. I mean, is that a jangle yeah. pop song or... Is that just another pretender song? Yeah. But the thing that the interesting thing is that people are listening to this music and saying it's not just rock. It's even more because there's so much. There's so much music. They have to even they have to, you know, subdivide the music even more to keep track of it. Well, in the Baroque period, they did not call that music Baroque music. They only called that in retrospect. And in the, in the medieval period, they didn't call it medieval either because no, <laughs> we hadn't hit the Renaissance yet. So there was nothing to compare right. it to. So we are always looking back. And I guess in some ways, it's a way of filtering. It's a way of categorizing, putting things into... I remember when you did set theory in high school math, you put things in sets, right? And they overlap. They're, they do Venn diagrams. And it's a way of filtering and... Like, if you were in a record store right now, you might arrange the albums like that instead of arranging them alphabetically. But then you'd change next week. You'd put all the, you'd arrange them by color and you'd arrange them by nationality, et cetera, et cetera. But there, there are many ways of approaching a large group of things, right, through different filters. And it's just a different filter to give you a different perspective. When you see that the birds are related to the pretenders in some ways, what you're seeing is that influence of the bird's sound on the pretender's sound. Right. I often wonder, though, if people even know that they one came before the other. Is that even a thing? Is that even a, 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 a quality, a characteristic of pretender's music or Tom Petty music, actually, if you really want to talk about bird's descendant? But, mm. um, you know, I mean, which came first? And is it necessary to know... Or is it, they both sound like Jangle Pop, and I love Jangle Pop, so I don't really care. <laughs> but what gets me is, can you can you imagine wanting to listen to Jangle Pop all day long? I couldn't tell my friends, hey guys, I'm going to go and uh, smoke some weed and listen to some Jangle Pop. I think they'd all just say, why don't you get out of the car now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like... Well, okay, so here's an example, yacht music. When did that yeah. term come around? That's, you know, I'm not sure exactly, and it's and it certainly is a very specific term about a particular kind of music. I really, it has nothing that, well, it doesn't have much to do with yachts. Um, it has a little to do with yachts. It's the sort of music that fops listen to, that they think of as really cool music. But then there's a group of people who think that 
that music is really interesting. And it kind of is the fact that they produced this kind of music and it was popular amongst a certain set of people. Um, I follow them on on whatever it, whatever that whatever Twitter is called today. Um, on uh, I follow uh, uh, this day in yacht rock, and there's a lot of music that falls into that category. That at the time we may not have called it something as as kindly sounding as yacht rock. We may have just called it garbage, um, but that stuff was popular, and it, it's and it's still popular. What have you found? Have you looked up the... Let me read from Wikipedia. The term yacht rock did not exist contemporaneously with the music the term describes, which was from about 1975 to 1984. It refers to adult-oriented rock or West Coast sound, which became identified with yacht rock in 2005 when the term was coined in J.D. Reisner et al.'s online video series of the same name. Understood as a pejorative term, yacht rock referred in part to a stereotypical yuppie yacht owner enjoying smooth music while sailing. So, soft rock. Yeah. Even adult adult-oriented rock is a term that I've never really liked. I, that's I me neither, and it's 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 an anathema. <laughs> it's you know, when, <laughs> when I was working in radio, it's like and you heard that a station was going adult-oriented rock, you're like, "Oh no. That's bad." Because, you know, soft rock is not really something that well, I in the radio industry didn't really want to work in because how do you, I mean, you got to go on the air and talk like this. And I didn't want to do that. I, you know, I wanted to play rock, but this music isn't bad. Some of it's actually kind of kitschy. You know, I think that's one of the reasons that people kind of get off on yacht rock because it's very kitschy and it's also very popular right now. It's of its time. And this is the kind of music that when you hear it, you're transported back to that time. Right. I said, well, we are. Yeah, right. But people who are hearing Christopher Cross do sailing for the first time aren't thinking about the Newport yachting races in 1981 when it was the theme. It's like they're thinking, oh, that's a nice little song. Sounds like he's sailing. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's really that's what I mean by the reevaluation. See, they are reevaluating it. They're they're re they're appropriating our music. <laughs> <laughs> they're taking it and they're redefining it and they're in it. Well, I say they, I mean the moderns, which, and they can do whatever they want with it. They can do whatever they want as far as genres go. I'll, I will be honest with you. I don't use genres. As I've said in the past, there are only four genres, classical pop, jazz, and uh, folk. Everything else descends from those. Until the genre tag showed up in MP3 files back in the day, I didn't pay any attention to genre. It would never occur to me to reorganize my library by genre, for instance. It's just, I know what music I like. It's all there in the shelves. I don't have to cut it up by genre. It's not necessary. In radio, in radio it was important to say what kind of format you had. That was It was understood. You know, if you said you played classic rock or active rock or urban or alternative, whatever, you knew what those words meant. Um, but... As far as like my personal collection and other people's personal collections, I don't think genre was ever that important until the files came along, the 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 tracks were stripped from the album, and then suddenly these tracks are out there disintegra disintegrated from an album. You have to define them in some group, and so they put it in a genre. When I had 50 CDs, 100 CDs, genre didn't matter, obviously. Right. But in my right. music library, I have to have genres because let's say I want to listen to a string quartet. 
So I'll go to my classical chamber music genre and I'll say, okay, do I want to listen to, I don't know, Beethoven, Schubert, Ravel, someone else? Because that's kind of the way I think of music. It's not that genre matters as much. In fact, I have to choose these genres because Apple's genres are just unacceptable. I want to just end this with another quote from the Lefsitz letter where he's talking about today's rock, which is, he says, hard-edged and marginal cult music for the brain dead and those living in an alternative universe where the 21st century never happened. Wow. Now I'm all for evolution, he says. That's what made rock so great. But if you were starting today, I'd begin with three chords and the truth. Yep. I think the most successful bands, that's the way they start. Next tracks? Go for it. As is my want, I discover an interesting album and listen to it four or five times. And last week I listened to music for, quote, fragments from the inside, unquote. This is an album of music composed and performed by Eraldo Bernocchi and Harold Budd for a video installation by videographer Petulia Mattioli and poet Marabresi. It was recorded live in June 2003 in Italy, and it's released on Sub Rosa. And this popped up on Apple Music. Big fan of Harold Budd. Been loving his music since the 1970s. It popped up on Apple Music. It's really interesting because you've got Harold Budd's lyrical piano, and you've got these electronic stuff going around in the background. And at first, I didn't look it up. I just said, okay, Harold Budd, I'm going to listen to it. And it sounded like someone remixed some Harold Budd compositions. And then I looked it up and saw that actually this was something that they worked together. There's a feeling that the two parts don't always fit, but except when they do, right? When they do fit, it makes sense. At the beginning, knowing Harold Budd's music, as I do, I was kind of a little bit surprised. Now, this is weird because on Wikipedia, they say this has seven tracks and it's 75 minutes. On Apple Music, it is six tracks and 54 minutes. It's missing the final 20-minute track, which is a real bummer because... I would like to listen to that final 20-minute track. You know that if this was the end of the thing, it's 20 minutes, then they're, they're improvising. It's probably really good. Uh, I'm not going to buy the CD to get it. Uh, I look to see if it's available anywhere. Even the CD is hard to find. Uh, maybe I'll check it out someday. So, Eraldo Bernocchi and Harold Budd, music for Fragments from the Inside. Doug, what have you got? I am going to be listening to an Apple Music playlist. I've never picked the playlist as an extract before. But this one's pretty good. In fact, you and I were talking about this a couple of days ago. It's an Apple Music playlist called Post-Punk Deep Cuts. There is a post-punk essentials and post-punk hits or something like that. But this one goes a little bit deeper. A deep cut, of course, is a song from an album that didn't get a lot of attention, didn't get a lot of radio airplay. But if you bought the album, you might be familiar with it. And post-punk music, that's not quite a genre. It's more like an era. I would say it's between 1978 and 1982. Uh, when a lot of bands, after listening to punk music, said, okay, that's that's gone a bit too far. Let's We want to do what we want to do, but we don't want to play it like that. We want to play it differently. We want to incorporate uh, other interesting uh, genres into our music. So you get bands like Joy Division, Suicide, Wire, Susie and the Banshees, New Order, Iggy Pop, Public Image Limited, The Cure, Gang of Four. That's just a few of the bands that are in this particular playlist. It's about six hours long. It seems to me that they probably add to it somewhat frequently, like Apple Music does with a lot of their uh, permanent playlists. But this one looks like it's going to be a lot of fun to listen to. I know a lot of cuts on it. Some of the music I don't know, so it will be fun to uh, to check out. I thought I knew a lot of post-punk music, but I guess I have some listening to do. That's what I'll be listening to. Post-punk deep cuts from Apple Music Alternative is my next track. 
This was episode number 261 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode show page at our website, where you'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. Don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so listener support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.